Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 129, September 4th to September 10th, 1863. Last week, we spent some time in Arkansas. We had the Brownsville and Bayou Meto engagements as the Union forces draw closer to Little Rock. The conclusion of that campaign will come shortly. Fort Smith has also fallen in that state, and Devil's Backbone has scattered the rebel defenders. Finally, we had the controversial Battle of Whitestone Hill. This week, we needed to check back in on some familiar places. We will spend some time in talking Charleston Harbor and Sabine Pass. We will also have the already-mentioned capture of Little Rock. First, let's have a brief note once again on habeas corpus. Before we do that, though, of course, we need to talk about the Patreon content, as we do. And we have a run of movies that we just wrapped up here. Now that we're fully into September, we did, back in July, Gettysburg. August, we did Glory. And then we did a movie review, Ride with the Devil, which goes, I think, pretty well with some of the things that we've been talking about with Gorillas, And actually, what we're going to be talking about here in a minute with habeas corpus, but also, of course, the Lawrence, Kansas raid. So we will have that posted on the Patreon. So taking a look at the synopsis and historical review of any of those movies, sounds like it would interest you. There is a link in the show description to the Patreon, and those proceeds are greatly appreciated. They do go toward the general upkeep of the show. So once again, thank you all very much. Speaking of places we have already been, although it's been some time, we did have a talk about habeas corpus and what that means. Well, earlier in 1863, Congress would pass the Habeas Corpus Suspension Act, giving the president the right to officially suspend that right if necessary. Remember that this would be to have the case examined to determine if it was lawful. On September 15th, Lincoln will officially use this right. This would tie into the confinement of suspected guerrillas and those assisting them. So the federal government could therefore throw these individuals into prison without it being justified or having proof. Of course, we need to remember that Secretary of War Edwin Stanton and his counterintelligence operations are going to use this to their advantage and for the cause of the Union. This is something we will continue to monitor as we get into the back nine, as it were. So we talked about it a little bit with the episode on Lawrence, Kansas, how there were a lot of family members of the guerrillas who were being confined. And in some cases, they were giving support. However, oftentimes, there's just that suspicion of being able to provide for one's relative who's a guerrilla who's obviously doing uh, illegal things and, and war crimes and whatnot. And so then you have this suspension of habeas corpus so that that's going to make it easier to try to whittle down on the support system for these individuals. And we talked, of course, extensively about how important that certainly was. When we last off off in Charleston Harbor, we had the unsuccessful attacks on Fort Wagner. Remember, we had an initial assault and then a second assault led by the 54th Massachusetts. Quincy Gilmore is going to be in charge of trying to capture Charleston, still a prominent symbol for the rebellion. 
he is still facing PGT Beauregard, who of course first gained notoriety with the bombardment of Fort Sumter back in 1861. Roswell Ripley, whom we have met in previous episodes, will be the primary field commander for the South. Now Sumter is an important piece of the defense of the harbor from the Union fleet. During the period of siege, there would be an attempt by vessels to take and neutralize the fortification, but it was beaten off by the defenders. Gilmore is going to decide to use the gains already made on Morris Island and move in closer. His objective will be to clear Fort Wagner and then Fort Sumter of its defenders. There would still be Confederate works such as Fort Johnson on James Island and then the various batteries on Sullivan Island but it would be a good start to an eventual assault by the Navy. Gilmore would receive reinforcements from the Army of the Potomac after the failed assaults, but the frontal attack method is going to be less appealing, and besides, we know that is not what Gilmore does best. If you recall from our account on Fort Pulaski, Gilmore was good at siege warfare, and also good at getting artillery into positions where it could do the most damage. Obviously, too, he has experience with getting artillery into a position with less than ideal terrain, of course. Talked about how Fort Pulaski is not necessarily on dry ground, right? There's there's all kinds of swampy terrain, so he does a good job of getting artillery pieces into a position that can neutralize that work. Work would have already begun in early August to construct a battery with a 100-pound Parrot rifle known as the Swamp Angel. This was going to be used directly against Charleston, something that would be protested by Beauregard. Several shots would be aimed into the city. We can compare this to the bombardment of Fredericksburg, although in the case of the smaller Virginia city, a lot of the population had already fled. Charleston civilians would abandon the areas closer to the range of the artillery, this particular portion of town being known as the Shell District. Gilmore would argue that this was a legitimate firing, the city being used for production of war material. Bombardments would begin from land and the Navy on Fort Sumter and Fort Wagner in the meantime. Wagner would sustain 60 days of continuous fire from the Union guns. August 17th would see the beginning of the bombardment on the older Fort Sumter, that work not being made of earth. By the 23rd, with the amount of shells incoming, the masonry would be greatly reduced and the cannon of the fort would be removed by Beauregard. Likewise, under covering fire from the artillery, the Union troops were able to get closer to Fort Wagner. By the 25th of August, the infantry had moved close enough to take rifle pits formerly belonging to the Confederates. The attacks would be supported by a requa gun, which was a fast-firing weapon that could wield 175 rounds of 58 caliber shot per minute. Now, if you were to look up what a Requa gun looks like, it looks kind of like a pipe organ, and I think very similar to an organ gun that you could get in one of the Total War games. From what I have seen of the Requa gun, it was at least kind of effective, not so the organ gun, which in Total War was just a waste of space and money. Maybe you, the listener, used it to great effect, but if I had one, it usually got knocked out right away or just never made it onto the battlefield because it was so slow. 
Regardless, I will try to post a picture to the website so that you can be the judge. Seeing that the end was near for Wagner, the fort would be abandoned by the defenders on September 6th. Gilmore could be happy with the progress he made in the summer and early fall of 1863, but this did not mean Charleston was close to falling. As mentioned, there were other works that could defend the city. Beauregard and Ripley, amongst other officers, actually had a good mind for defense and would do so effectively throughout the war. There will be other attempts to take the city in 1864 and make headway both on water and on land, and rest assured we will cover them, but for now, Charleston is still flying the Confederate national flag. It is also kind of interesting, and this is something that maybe we talked about in our Glory movie review, that these attacks on Fort Wagner are kind of unnecessary in that if that happened in July and you're conducting real siege activity into August and then September, that fort gets abandoned, that's not necessarily a whole lot of time. So some of these assaults, and I've actually seen it in some source material, will state that they're kind of unnecessary. So other than getting, as the movie title would imply, glory for the 54th Massachusetts and getting them some pretty serious combat experience, but it's also a lot of loss of life for something that necessarily didn't have to happen. On September 8th, we have the Second Battle of Sabine Pass, which is dubbed by many, including Jefferson Davis, as the most lopsided victory of the war. It's been a while since we have been on the Texas coast, but Union naval forces would once again decide to take a crack at the key railroad link. But why exactly would they decide to do this? Well, it has been some time, but we should point out that at this period, in 1863, the French have made significant gains into Mexico. While they are wrangling the interior of the country, opportunities would be on the table for support of the Confederacy if they shared a border. Now, it should also be pointed out that this was going to be hard. The border states in the north of Mexico were run by Cadillos, essentially warlords, who either were not loyal to the new conservatives or simply were looking out for themselves. We know that Juaristas mounted a defense from these northern states, the French pushing them back. Napoleon III may not have been too keen on helping the Confederacy at this point in the war as well. July had been a bad month and things were not looking good for the South. Additionally, with emancipation, French opposition to the Union would seem to be in poor taste to the rest of the world. Obviously, when you're trying to start an empire, that's pretty important. The threat, though, was still very real for the Lincoln administration. The French Navy had sent an ironclad of their own, the Normandie, across the Atlantic. Many believe that even with the gains the North had made in their ironclad production, the Normandie, especially with its seagoing capability, would be a match for anything the U.S. Navy had on the water. If we look at the immediate aftermath of Vicksburg, there are two armies who could potentially be available for service. Nathaniel Banks and that of Ulysses S. Grant. Both would briefly look east and favor a strike at Mobile, Alabama. From there, one of the armies could link up with Rosecrans and his army as it moved on Atlanta, cutting a large swath out of the south. 
but Lincoln would be more concerned with making a move on Texas and potentially establishing a state government for Louisiana. The goal was twofold. One, they could take away the logistical centers from which a French ally could supply the Confederacy in Texas, and then a state government in Louisiana would be helpful for the coming elections. We actually mentioned last week when we talked about what was going on in Arkansas, how important it was going to be for the Lincoln administration to continue to establish these pro-union governments in southern states. Again, gaining legitimacy. Obviously, you're also looking good in terms of re-election in that case, and there's going to, we'll get there, but there is some legitimate fear that Lincoln might not be re-elected as the war continues to drag on. Banks decided that if he was going to be in charge of the mission, then he would take it. Grant would still look east, and in the meantime, we'll actually have a fall from a horse while in New Orleans, sparking rumors of him being drunk at the time. Now, I have seen some say that he was in fact drunk, but it was not the kind of press he needed at the time, and the fall could have killed him. I've even seen some sources that say that being intoxicated actually helps you fall because your body is relaxed, although I'm by no means recommending you try it, just saying maybe Grant could have benefited from the bottle in this case. In the meantime, his army had shrunk due to expiring enlistments and disease. So, Banks would be bolstered by some reinforcement and two new Corps commanders, EOC Ord and William Franklin, Franklin having been sitting on the bench since early 1863. If a strike could be made at Sabine and Beaumont, then supplies to Louisiana would be limited. Banks would be free to move on to destroying Taylor and securing the Pelican State. Kirby Smith was the new commander for the entire Trans-Mississippi, and he had a problem in manpower and supply. He would use the impressment law and also contact the French for supplies in exchange for cotton. But it was a daunting task. His department was spread very thin and now essentially needed to act independently. Help would not come from the east. The civilians were also a problem. Taking their foodstuffs was one thing, but much in the same way as the Union agents, they were forced to take reduced rates for their cotton. Already, there are some men in the more wilderness areas in Louisiana who formed irregular units to combat the Confederates. August 1863 had seen operations conducted by the military against these men, which at least quieted the area for some time. It was definitely not an envious task for Kirby Smith. Smith uses the Alamo as an example for his stirring of the spirit of Texas, but I would have definitely been in the back raising my hand asking to confirm that all those guys died, right? So maybe not the best or most inspiring example. It is kind of curious, too, you kind of point this out, and there are some less-than-kind source material that I've seen where they are pretty critical of Lincoln and how he does put emphasis on Texas, on Louisiana, and then kind of falls by the wayside when things start to kind of unravel at least a little bit here in September of 1863. But there could have really been a more useful route, maybe by Grant and some of his forces, if they had taken Mobile and if they had cut to join Rosecrans, that definitely would have put a lot of pressure on the Confederacy. So it, it's kind of interesting 
especially when you see and you read about how Kirby Smith is, like I said, by himself, and he needs to kind of cobble together this defense, and he actually does a pretty good job, uh, all things considered, but really, is he the biggest threat that you can see toward the ending of the war? Probably not. Union troops would occupy themselves with probes at the Confederate defense lines. Venturing out from Vicksburg and Natchez, they would not meet any significant resistance, although there would be some counter-raiding activity by Tom Green and his cavalry. Smith would need time, something that Banks was not willing to give him. The probing actions had drawn Taylor away from the primary objective. Banks believed that if Houston was neutralized, everything would come unraveled, so he planned a landing at Sabine Pass, which you remember had already seen some naval action. From there, his invasion force and the 19th Corps, commanded by William Franklin, will destroy Beaumont, a key stop on the railroad. Franklin would be supported by several ships and have veteran officers like Godfrey Weitzel under his command. For Sabine, the plan was simple. The USS Granite City would mark the depths and entrances to the pass, and then Union ships would force entry and land the infantry. A problem would be that the Granite City would fail in this task, and the terrain was swampy, meaning a landing would be difficult to take the defenses by that route. But the Confederates only had 46 defenders in an earthwork known as Fort Griffin, commanded by Lieutenant Richard Dowling and some cottonclads under Leon Smith, who you remember from the capture of Galveston. This is not exactly a grand army to face them. In essence, it should have been a cakewalk. On the 8th, the USS Clifton would open fire on the fort, but the Confederates were disciplined and held their fire. They had engaged in practice and had ranged the pass, so they were very prepared with four 32-pounders, two of which were howitzers and two 24-pounders, so they were actually well-armed. The Union flotilla decides to move the Clifton, Arizona, and Sackham into the pass to engage the fort while two transports would land infantry to take the work itself. They would move forward around 3 p.m., the USS Clifton tasked with occupying the fort, while the Sackham and the Arizona moved through the pass and eliminated any threats beyond. Dowling and his defenders held their fire again until the Sackham posed an inviting target. Firing from Fort Griffin would hit the hull and burst the steamer, causing casualties. This along with more hits would disable the vessel, her captain signaling for the Arizona to come to her aid. The Clifton attempted to get in between the fort and the wounded gunboat, but would also be subject to heavy cannonading, her rudder being disabled. For a time, they would trade fire with the fort, the gunboat having also sharpshooters and infantry on board to add to the fire. It was not long before the Clifton and the Sackham surrendered, although Lieutenant Crocker commanding the Clifton would deny it was under his order. The Arizona escaped and the troops never landed, seeing that doing so would also put them under the accurate rebel fire. In only about an hour, Lieutenant Dowling had disabled two ships, capturing maybe 150 and inflicting some casualties, bringing the total to 230, and some estimates at 300. All the while, none of the defenders had been killed or wounded. Amazingly, 
John Baghead Magruder and other officers had been under the impression the fort was lost before the battle had even begun. Only a hundred or so reinforcements had shown up, so it was just assumed that they had been defeated. Supplies, including fresh water, were running low, and there was no good place for an alternative landing. Franklin and the 19th Corps would return to New Orleans, this first attempt having been turned away and Banks forced to seek an alternative. Here's also why Sabine Pass is important, because if the landings had been successful, then there would not have been kind of the shift, as we're going to see with Chickamauga, everything kind of changes in terms of perspective for the Union, in terms of priorities, and had there been a successful landing here in Texas, then maybe, maybe Banks is able to continue with his original plan, and maybe it works, maybe it doesn't, but... We're not going to be able to find that out because Sabine happens, Chickamauga is going to happen, and we're right around the corner from Chickamauga. I know it's hard to believe. I feel like we just did Gettysburg, but we're right around the corner from the second largest battle of the war. And so Banks is going to be kind of floundering around without any kind of direction once that happens. This week on September 6th, we also have a duel between Lucius Walker and John Marmaduke, which will end the feud between the two, and unfortunately see the death of Walker. Now we need to mention this before we get to the conclusion of Steele's capture of Little Rock for a variety of reasons, but mostly because I just wanted to point out that there is more of a rough nature of the western part of the United States at this point. It was not long ago that states like Mississippi and Alabama were the frontier. Arkansas in many ways was still the frontier, and in the 1860s more like the Wild West than we would probably think today. The famous book and movie True Grit is based in Arkansas, and that is not set long after the Civil War, so that should also give us an idea. Mississippi troops were known to be rugged and backwoods men in the same way that, say, soldiers from Wisconsin, Minnesota, and Iowa were known as. It is also hard to think, once again, that you could have a disagreement with someone that will escalate to the point where you are going to try to kill the offending party. While it's true duels are sort of phasing out, there's still going to be a viable way to solve a dispute. We have already documented a list of the bumping of heads that Walker and Marmaduke will have during the 1863 campaigns in Arkansas. Marmaduke will accuse Walker of not supporting his flank during the assault at Helena, and he will also blame him for not springing a trap at Brownsville, and will likewise blame him for not properly supporting him at Bayou Meadow. In fact, it is this criticism of Bayumeto that will lead us to the dueling ground. He will refer to his victory at Reed's Bridge and claim that Walker had been a coward. Now, we have talked about weird Victorian ideals, and it should not surprise us to come to the conclusion that calling someone a coward was a big no-no. But it might not have all been on Marmaduke. Walker had less combat experience than his fellow cavalry officer, and had already been sent to the Trans-Mississippi by Braxton Bragg. Now, we'll see throughout the war, it's usually Lee who is going to send people west for not fitting his standards, but Bragg, we know, was a stickler for discipline. Lack of discipline or disorderly conduct would have caught Walker on a hit list, and it was reported that they did not get along during their time as it was. Was it a personal slight or some kind of breach in decorum? Bragg is going to feel that Walker was unfit for command, and that's how, unfortunately for him, he comes into contact with John Marmaduke. 
Now, once you've been called a coward, you really cannot let that stand, so there's going to be a duel. Before that, though, there would be some exchanging of clarifications between the two officers. If you've ever seen Hamilton, you will know that this is part of the Ten Duel Commandments. Walker needed clarification. Marmaduke denied saying he was a coward outright, but then went on to say during the battle that Walker had somewhat more than prudent care in the avoidance of all positions of danger. Now, when you say something like that, you're probably saying it without really saying it, right? John C. Moore and Robert Crockett had been involved in the exchanging of notes and would be the seconds in the duel. Moore has actually been in our story since the early days, commanding under Price in the Missouri State Guard. He would go on to command under Shelby and then serve in Mexico. Robert Crockett was the son of Davy Crockett. He was a lawyer and newspaper editor before the war. After the war, he'd become a senator from Arkansas. So the two sides would use Colt Navy revolvers at 15 paces, either until someone was hit or until the revolvers were out of rounds. Sterling Price, to his credit, would learn of the duel and attempt to prevent it. But Walker never received his order, and Marmaduke was definitely not going to back down now, simply ignoring it. Both first shots would miss, but Marmaduke would find Walker in the kidney with his second, mortally wounding his enemy. Afterwards, Price would place everyone under arrest, but needed to release the officers due to the campaign. In many ways, this is similar to the incident between Jefferson C. Davis and Bull Nelson, although that had not been a duel, but more of a murder. You remember how Jefferson Davis was an experienced officer, and so he's necessary for the Confederate invasion into Kentucky. He's needed for that crisis, so nothing really happens to him. While the subordinate who took over for Walker refused to serve under Marmaduke and was briefly arrested, nothing really came out of the duel. As you can imagine, though, when two of your own officers are shooting at one another, it's really not good for morale. In Arkansas, Steele's Union forces would approach Little Rock. Remember that Price had constructed most of the Confederate earthworks protecting the north side of the city, so the Federal General decided to cross the Arkansas from the south. From there, he could then flank the enemy out of their positions. On September 9th, he would faint with part of his forces, but begin construction on a pontoon bridge spanning the river. Colonel Archibald Dobbins of the Confederate forces would arrive in the area and quickly call for reinforcement. Dobbins was actually the officer who had refused to serve under Marmaduke and had been placed under arrest. Nothing will come of it and he will serve out the remainder of the war, eventually relocating to South America, where he engaged in business, having seen some success in mercantiles in New Orleans. His death is actually a mystery, as he disappeared while living in Argentina. Artillery firing on the bridge was quickly suppressed by gathering Union batteries. The 40th Iowa and 40th Illinois would establish a beachhead on the southern bank, allowing for Davidson's forces to cross. Dobbins would then withdraw to Bayou Forche and set up a new defense line there. It was here that Marmaduke would arrive and take over command. 
he had veteran troops, so it would not be an easy task for the Federals. Davidson's brigades, under Glover and Lewis Merrill, would attack the defenders in essentially two different locations on the battlefield. The bayou was essentially a divider running through the terrain. Glover would attack through more wooded areas, moving on William Jeffers and his Missouri troops. They would see initial success in the hands of their attacking foe, driving off cavalry supports and capturing artillery. Glover would send forward his men dismounted. Facing Merrill was Robert C. Newton and his mixed regiments from across a cornfield. Confederate artillery, for a lack of horses, were drawn by oxen on this part of the field. This artillery and the stout defense would hold on, driving back the Union attackers. While the defenders had held, Price would see the writing on the wall. Steele's infantry had moved to the north side of the river to face off against the defenses there. Vicksburg, like First Manassas, was a cautionary tale for the Confederacy, as we will see in great effects later next week. You remember how First Manassas, once that happens, there's no Union officer that wants to repeat that, right? And that's something McClellan doesn't want to have happen, certainly, and it adds into his more cautious nature. Well, nobody is going to want to have another Vicksburg where you're going to get sieged and then have to surrender. So Price is not going to want to test that. Confederates would pull out, burning a gunboat and any excess supplies. Steele would occupy Little Rock with Price and his army escaping, although there would be many desertions. Bayou Forche ended in around 70 Union casualties, with a smaller number of Confederate losses, which are unrecorded. It was the final act in our brief play on Steele's campaign. But there will be more campaigning, especially the Clarendon Expedition in 1864, so just hold on to that thought. With that, let's pause. I think we have now had a better idea of what's going on in the Trans-Mississippi. Usually, that theater gets less love than the others, but it's important nonetheless. Sabine Pass has held, Little Rock has fallen. We also had a little discussion about habeas corpus, and we are checking back in on what's going on in Charleston. Next week, we are going to have one thing on our mind, and that will be hanging out in Tennessee and Georgia mostly, because next week, everybody, we need to set up the Battle of Chickamauga. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website as well as Patreon and Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. Feedback is always welcome. Questions, comments, concerns, the email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening and have a great week. <laughs>